Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's August 30th, 1963, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. When we think of the Moscow-Washington hotline, most of us probably instinctively imagine a cartoonish bright red telephone sitting on the desks of the US and Russian presidents that flashes when the two leaders want a natter about whether or not to have a nuclear war. But in actual fact, when the system went into service on this day in 1963, it was a teletype machine that looked like a cross between an ancient typewriter and a pretty exceptionally beige record cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't exactly direct either for something that we imagine as an A to B connection between Moscow and Washington. It's actually a 10,000 mile long transatlantic cable that is routed from Washington to London. Then it goes to Copenhagen, then (laughs) Stockholm, then Helsinki (laughs) before the final bit of cable that takes it through to Moscow. And it's not in the White House and it's not in the Kremlin. It's in the Communist Party headquarters of Red Square And in the American end, it's actually in the Pentagon. But there is a good reason that you might imagine it as being a red telephone. There is a red phone on public display at the Jimmy Carter Library and Museum in Atlanta. And that claims that it is the hotline, but it isn't a hotline because a hotline was never a red phone. It was probably a domestic hotline, such as, you know, a line of communication between the White House and the Pentagon. So it probably was used as a hotline, but not that one. I mean, there's a really good reason why it wouldn't be a telephone. One is that obviously that would be very vulnerable to interception, but also it would rely on the president being at home. They'd have to be sitting yes. at home beside the telephone because the, the president of Russia isn't going to leave you a, a voice machine message, are they? <laughs> Although this business about being liable to interception, I, I mean, it appears to have worked <laughs> over these decades. <laughs> but I'm right. amazed by how many more people are necessitated by it being text-based and fax-based and tech-based. There are teams mm. of 10 people just on the American side, including expert translators. I mean, that's got to be open to infiltration, hasn't it? Who, who see every message, supposedly for the president's eyes only, before it's delivered. Yeah. Here's how we want the message to read. Yes, I hear you. We'll <laughs> enter precisely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily sound like the most logical way of communicating. But the thing about the hotline was that it was so much better than what had gone before. Well, which so, was the I Cuban think, Missile Crisis. The <laughs> Cuban the Missile Crisis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> most things are better than nearly the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but before we get into it, because this, this is a bit complicated, I just wanted to say that the necessity of a direct hotline had been outlined several times before it actually got into the real-life drama of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were lots of people who foresaw a situation exactly like that. So one was a guy called Thomas Schelling, who was a Harvard professor, and he got this idea from the novel Red Alert, which was the loose basis of the film Dr. Strangelove. And in the novel, it involves this paranoid, renegade US general launching a single-handed nuclear attack on the USSR, and the novel 
novel is about the US and the Russians scrambling to prevent it. With a red phone, by the way, hence another reason. With a red phone. Why, in the public imagination, it's that way. Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, yeah. And in 1960, Jess Gorkin, who was the editor of Parade magazine, published an open letter to President Eisenhower, which concluded with, must the world be lost for want of a telephone call? So the absence of direct communication was already seen as this looming disaster in a nuclearized world. Although the idea as well that maybe phones won't be the best way to resolve things was kind of because they thought, well, actually, if you have two people speaking to one another directly, there's every chance that tensions could become inflamed or things could be lost in translation a little bit. And or that's people why- could be played, Yeah, you know? I mean, talking about Kennedy here. People might have thought, oh, he could be easily swayed in a conversation, inadvertently say something that he thinks is charmingly diffusing a situation and actually escalate it. We don't, we're not party to it. Which is, it's astonishing really that so much geopolitics, I think, hinges on whether two particular world leaders like each other or don't like each other. I mean, it's sort of something we're stuck with, but it's at least an attempt to perhaps try to mitigate for that fact and to stop the sort of rush of blood to the head. The State Department and the military objected to the idea of the president speaking behind their backs to the Russians. And as a result of that, during the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, when Kennedy and Khrushchev wanted to deliver messages to each other, it either took six hours through regular diplomatic channels or you could just make a public statement, which would be reported on the radio immediately. So they both started making public statements, which of course escalated things, because you've got all the rhetoric that goes with it and all the show of strength. Uh, Yeah, it was the miscommunications was what really brought the Cuban Missile Crisis to the brink of being an apocalyptic disaster. Letters were being written by Khrushchev. They were delivered to the US Embassy in Moscow, where they were translated, ciphered, sent to Washington, deciphered, typed up. By the time they got to Kennedy, nearly 12 hours had passed. And it wasn't helped by the fact that Khrushchev wrote a 3,000-word-long letter to Kennedy. (laughs) It was emotional, it was detailed, it described the horrors of nuclear conflict. And tucked away in there was a crucial offer, which was to withdraw missiles from Cuba, which is what the whole crisis was about, in exchange for US guarantees not to invade the island. That was all he asked for at this point. Mm. By the time Kennedy had actually received the translated version of this message, Khrushchev had already appeared on Radio Moscow where he publicly demanded that the US would also have to remove their missiles from Turkey. So JFK chose to ignore this. He said, I'll stick with the message that I actually got, even though that's now outdated. And because he stuck to those terms and he didn't address the issue of the US missiles in Turkey, that's what brought the dangers up to the the highest point of the conflict. And that was what was later agreed on to solve the conflict, was that the US secretly agreed that they would withdraw the missiles from Turkey. They just wouldn't acknowledge that they'd done it publicly. But, you know, it was all about communication. It is astonishing that Khrushchev was sitting around thinking, why is it taking him so long to reply when he had actually, it's not like he fired off a text and then was <laughs> sitting on the, looking at the red receipt and going, see, he's read it. Like, you know, he knew that this was an incredibly long message that needed to be received, decoded, translated and interpreted. Before then, the US could even decide what they wanted their answer to be. But I suppose that speaks to the cultural differences between Soviet era Russia and the United States in the 1960s, doesn't it? Like they're very very different cultures with different ways of doing things and different ways of speaking politically and privately and essentially when the hotline system has worked at its best it has been when it's just been a very simple message like it's not the agreement it's not the lease is it it's a clause on the lease it's just a, a point like like for example in the arab israeli wars of 1967-1973 russia and america essentially both agreed to do nothing that was the thing that they said let's stay out of this yeah. was essentially the message yeah. and everyone's like yep fine 
It's, it's when it gets yeah. complicated that there's a problem. You can see yeah. the two cultures in the first test messages that were sent using the hotline. The US one was, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog's back. And the reason I, I know the phrase is, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, I think they added the z back so they, they could test the apostrophe. Mm-hmm. That's but what the, I thought as well. the Russians <laughs> sent back a poetic description of a Moscow sunset. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things about that first message from the Americans that I found particularly interesting was that it was all written in capital. And I was thinking, if you are trying to devise a system that is intended to bring the tone and the tenor down a bit, put it in lowercase. Man, put it in Comic Sans and like have a smiley face at top and, and bottom of the message. You know, you want to try and make this as friendly as possible. I mean, I imagine the people that over the decades then manned the hotline had quite a cordial relationship because it was tested every hour. So it got to the stage where, yes. according to one New York Times report in the 1980s, the Americans would sometimes send Shakespeare and the Russians would send Chekhov back, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> I'm guessing it's even friendlier because the system obviously upgraded over the years and now is done via super, super secure email, essentially. The hotline consists of emails for official communications and a chat function, which is meant to be for the operators on either end to be able to communicate. But I bet there's all kinds of banter there. Bomb emoji, thumb up. <laughs> <laughs> but the initial technology that was used was teleprinters. It was basically a way to send instant telegraph messages. And one-time pads were used for encryption rather than coming up with these complicated ciphers it's it's basically this form of basic but unbreakable encryption because you're using a one-time key so if you've got the key it's actually really simple but obviously once the key is destroyed no one else can read that message so it's much much quicker than what they were doing before each side got two teleprinters one with the cyrillic russian alphabet so that both sides could type in their native language speed things up even more the ciphering machines were built in norway which was seen as a neutral power it's interesting how having a hotline to a nation can mean both that you're number one enemies and that you're number one friends. Or or at least there's a priority in you talking to each other with urgency, yeah. which must piss off the countries in the middle. Like, you know, Israel and Egypt have one, India and America have one, America and Russia have one, but all for different reasons. But the ones that are just kind of like, yeah, they're a country, but they can go through to our switchboard. They must be annoyed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it just must be really annoying to be, I don't know, Ecuador or something. Yeah. Well, that was one of the ways that the Republican Party even criticised the idea of this hotline when in its 1964 national platform, it said basically that Kennedy's administration had, quote, sought accommodations with communism without adequate safeguards and compensating gains for freedom. It has alienated proven allies by opening a hotline first with a sworn enemy rather than with a proven friend. Well, there are now a host of hotlines, but I have to say that the original one is the one that seems to retain the Mm. most urgency. So since 2007, there's been a Washington-Beijing hotline, which is an actual phone. However, in May 2021, Kurt Campbell, who is a US policy coordinator for the Indo-Pacific, said, the couple of times we've used it, it just rung in an empty room for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow. But the first hurdle that the production faced was trying to find the right gorilla. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 